can take a copy of God's word in your hands and turn with me to Paul's letter to the Philippians. I'll read the first 11 verses of Philippians 2, although this afternoon my attention will be drawn to verses 1 to 5, and in the next three weeks we'll be looking at uh, these passages 1 to 11. Before we read God's words, let's turn in prayer for his help. Heavenly Father, we need you to come in the person and the power of the Holy Spirit of God right now to take your word, to take the living word of God, to drive it into our hearts, into every pore and crevice of our souls, that we might be changed to become more Christ-like, to become more like Christ, who purchased us with his blood. Would you work among us, we pray, and wield the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, with power and effect in every heart. I pray, Lord, for the lost, that you would save them. I pray for the backslidden, that you would restore them. I pray for the weak, that you would strengthen them. And as you move among us, I pray that you'd grant that every eye, every attention, every heart would be focused on Christ. And that by his grace, he would have all the praise. In his name, amen. Would you read with me Philippians 2 and verse 1? So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves, that each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. We thank the Lord. He's spoken to us in his inerrant word. I want to talk about a Christian mind this afternoon. Um, these verses are very beautiful. Some of the most beautiful verses of Holy Scriptures, the Christ hymn. In tragic analysis, and analysis, if you like, of our culture, James Montgomery Boyce wrote, We live in mindless times, days in which millions of people are drifting along through life, manipulated by the media, particularly television, and they don't know it. Few give thought to their eternal soul, and even Christians are unaware of thinking or living other than the secular culture which surrounds us. Very poignant, very moving. We live in mindless times. And as we turn to Philippians chapter 2 verses 1 to 5, I think Paul is off, 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 offering us something of a remedy to that sickness in our culture and sadly in many of our churches. How can we have help 
to develop a Christian mind. If you cast your eye over the first five verses, you see standing out very clearly how often the Apostle Paul mentions our thinking, our mindset, our reason. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. And that word count is also could be translated consider. In verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. For Paul, if we're going to live out the Christian life, as he's going to call us to do in humility and unity and community and godliness, the place to start is actually not behaviour modification though that must follow, but it's not only behaviour modification, but with our Christian minds, with the mind, that the depth of our thinking, the way that our minds are shaped, the way that our minds orient, are orientated or structured, holiness, unity, community, which are very much the twin foci of this part of Paul's letter. Holiness and community have its roots in a Christian mind. Many have struggled, have we not, with besetting sin. Many have wept over it. Many have prayed for deliverance from it. Many have read books about it. And we've talked and sought counsel concerning it. As Christians, we should, we must, deal with persistent patterns of sin. Still, it seems to us that no matter what we do, whatever our good intentions, it always reappears like that weed in the garden. And I think Philippians 2, 1 to 5 would say to us that that's a great analogy, that besetting sin is a, is a weed. And if you only address the behaviour, you're just chopping the head off the weed. No, you have to deal with the roots in your mind. At the very roots of your psyche and personality and who you are. Your mind has to be made over and made new. The roots of godliness sink deep into our thinking, into our minds. So Christians need Christian minds. And that's precisely what the great apostle is calling us to in these first five verses of Philippians 2, the Christian mind. And to help us, I think, with his prescription, I want to ask a number of questions of the passage. So would you listen along with me? Number one, what? What is a Christian mind? What, Paul, do you have in mind when you call us to have this mind among us as it is ours in Jesus Christ. What mind precisely? Well, look at verse 2. Paul uses two phrases, one at the beginning of the verse and one at the end, virtually that are identical in meaning. The Philippians, he says, should fulfil his joy of being of the same mind, and at the other end of the verse, they are to be of one mind. They stand as bookends, and they tell us 
that the Christian mind is essentially corporate in its orientation. It is concerned with unity, not with ourselves alone, but with one another. To think Christianly, to think about the Christian life in the context of the community of God's people, the church. And it's an emphasis that Paul will repeat time and time again in various ways in these verses and throughout the whole letter to the church in Philippi. For example, when a church in uh, Dallas, Texas, became divided, the rift became so bitter that each side sued a lawsuit seeking to dispossess the other from the same building. And this, this despite Scripture's warnings, that Christians shouldn't take each other to court. And the story hit the newspapers and it gathered interest from the readers. And the judge ruled that it wasn't the province of a court to decide until the case had been heard before the church's court. So the dispute was remanded to the leadership of the church where the decision was made to award the real estate and properties to one of the sides. The losers withdrew and founded another church nearby. And it was reported in the newspapers that the church court had traced the trouble to its source. This is, this is, you know, one church got the whole building, the other one started up a new church nearby because at a church dinner, an elder had been served a smaller size of ham than a child seated next to him. What a laughing stock we can be. What a laughing stock. What ridiculous. And I, I hesitate to say because some people would know the country nearby, but I have to deal with some similar situations in part of the British Isles where churches don't talk to each other. Churches don't talk to each other. And we've seen it in our church, the cancer of unforgiveness that eats away, that eats away at Christian unity. Leslie Flynn, he has a book with a dubious title called Great Church Fights. Can you imagine somebody who goes around looking for fights in the church? And he quotes a story from the Welsh, newspa Welsh newspaper about a church that was looking for a new pastor. He said, yesterday, the two opposition groups both sent ministers to the pulpit. Both spoke at the same time. <laughs> Goodness me. Trying to shout above the other. Both called for hymns. And the congregation sang both. One, one side of the congregation singing one hymn, the other singing the other. Then they started shouting at each other. By, this is in the newspaper. Bibles were raised in anger. The Sunday morning service turned into bedlam. And through it all, the preachers kept preaching. Eventually, the deacon called a policeman. And they came in and began shouting for the congregation to stop shouting. They advised the 40 persons in the church to return home, but they still were arguing. And they called last night a let's be friends meeting, which broke up in an argument. I mean, it's, 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 it, you say, well, it's, it's a laughing stock, but this is, this is the problem of when unity and holiness and godliness and humility individually is not pursued. I mean, I could just see a great film out of this, Monty Python goes to church, kind of, you know, something like that. But the sad thing is that these stories are not just stories, they're true. 
And many of the dangers to the church come from within. I don't often quote Karl Barth, but Karl Barth says that there are no letters in the New Testament apart from the problems of the church. And which is true of the letter to the Philippians, which was written from prison because of the dangers, when the dangers from without were immense. So we need each other. We need each other if we're to live for God's glory before the eyes of the watching world. Whether it's the letter to James, whether it's the letter um, to Hebrews, there are so many reasons that we're to live for the glory of God because the world is watching. We're to live in gospel partnership. We're to strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. So if we're to have Christian minds, we're to need one another. If we're to see how to think biblically, how to be faithful, how to address the challenges that confront us, we need one another. A Christian mind is a mind that's lived in Christian community. It is the same mind. It is one mind that we grow together. So between these two bookends at the end of the verse, Paul unfolds a little more what it means to have oneness of mind. He says we're to have the same love being in full accord. And that phrase, the same love, simply means our love is not to be selective. Sometimes turn towards you, A, and not you, B. No, our love is to be even, generous, equal, available, and shared. And as the ESV translated, we are to have the same mind, being in full accord and of one mind, it misses much of the beauty of the original. Because what it says in the original language is we're to be of one soul, which I think is beautiful. Christian unity is one soul. A unity that's so profound, it is though we had one soul. Intimate, profound connection. Like all of our faculties in a single person, that is how profound Paul wants unity of mind, unity of purpose, unity of thinking to be. So a mind that thinks Christianly is a mind that thinks about the brothers and sisters around you. We need each other if we're to live for the glory of God, if we're to have a Christian mind. Paul goes on to say, a Christian mind is a mind that does not seek self. It's not selfish. It seeks the good of others. That is what marks fellowship. And we know that, don't we? Even in the family we know that. That when people think of others before themselves, it works. When we're selfish, it doesn't. The great evidence of sanctification that penetrates to the heart of our thinking not just to our doing, but a Christian mind. There is no such thing as a personal relationship with Jesus, if by personal you mean you in your small, small corner and me in mine, something private, something individual, something secret. No, we're to live one another, with one another, for each other and upon each other as we seek to live out the Christian life. And then in verses 3 and 4, Paul elaborates more on how this deep unity of mind, soul, love and life should work itself out. First of all, negatively, 
and then positively. So Christian unity works it out in a negative way in verses 3 and 4. He says, don't live from rivalry or conceit. He's already used the word rivalry in Philippians 1.17 to talk about those who preached Christ out of envy to bring the Apostle Paul down a peg or two, to compete with him out of jealousy. Similarly, the word conceit is a compound word that means empty glory, vain glory. That's what motivated these jealous preachers. They wanted to make a name for themselves. And Paul is warning us that in the church of Jesus Christ, anything that promotes self at the expense of others is a contradiction of our profession of faith in Jesus Christ. The larger point Paul makes as he points us to verses 5 to 11 to Christ himself is Christ's example and our union with him. So it's inconsistent to say that we follow Jesus, that we love Jesus, we're united to him, we're in him. If then we seek our own glory first. So do not let your lives together be characterised by manipulation that puts self first. The church is no place for interpersonal political gains or power plays, as we see in the world. The church is not about getting your own recognition. No, the church is working itself out in a Christian mind by following the example of Christ. And then Paul said, in a positive sense, we're to count others more significant than ourselves. He doesn't mean that we're to wallow in self-pity or to imagine that we're worthless. That can be a great hindrance if we just value ourselves as useless and worthless. No, he explains exactly what he means in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interest of others. We're to value one another so much that we are willing to go without for the good of others. When did you last disadvantage yourself so that someone else, with no glance at what you get out of it, you disadvantaged yourself that someone else might benefit, might be directed to Christ, might be helped along the path of Christian obedience or simply just might be encouraged. And that's what Paul is saying. We're to look out for others' interests, not only to our own. So disadvantage yourself so that your brothers and sisters may have advantage. And if everyone was doing that, it would just work. So as they seek to be encouraged and they seek to make progress in the Christian life. And then Paul says, where does this come from? The renewing of our minds. In humility, as sometimes is translated in loneliness of mind, count others more significant than yourselves. Humility is not about only about actions. It's about a deep, settled contentment. It's a deep, settled commitment. It's a deep, settled direction, orientation of your mind, a framing of your thinking, whereby you put others first 
and you have a determination, a determination to serve Jesus and his church. Pecking orders are an unavoidable fact of life sometimes, are they not? A pecking order. And in Philippi, it was very much that way in the Roman colony of Philippi. Society was shaped by rank, prestige and position. The social pecking order was important. And climbing the social ladder was how you got on in the world in Philippi. So the root from which Paul draws his term for humility or lowly-mindedness was used to describe the mentality of those who are at the bottom of that social ladder. It was used to describe a slave's mindset. It evoked images of someone shabby and of no account. In Philippi, the word Paul uses for humility was not a virtue, no, it was a liability. The kind of humility he's talking about was seen as a liability. You see, when we don't look out for our own interests, we seek to serve others. And in our culture, we use the word humility as a virtue. The practice is something that largely eludes us. So are we so different from the Philippian culture and the Philippian society? When we want to make a name for ourselves and climb the social ladder, that's important to us, where we are inclined to vain glory. Paul is saying to follow Jesus is to have a completely different mind. It is to look like Jesus, who didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, divested himself of the paraphernalia of majesty, and he came among us as a slave. He took the form of a slave. He became obedient all the way to the cross to save us, to love us, redeem us. And if we're followers of Jesus, but vain glory rather than that servant-hearted humility is the character of our lives, we've wandered far from the path of obedience to the Lord. And Paul, yes, is calling us to repentance. Kent Hughes, in his commentary, has a beautiful story about the conductor of a symphony orchestra. Come from Vienna, that, you know, it, it means quite a bit, um, this story does. And he, I quote, the conductor of a symphony orchestra was once asked, what is the most difficult instrument to play? And he responded, the second violin. He said, I find plenty of first violinists, but to find someone who will play second violin with enthusiasm, that's a problem. And if we had no second violin, we have no harmony. Without somebody willing and enthusiastically wanting to play second fiddle rather than first, it takes more grace than I can tell to play the second fiddle well. Paul is saying to us in these first five verses, second violin is not something that you settle for as a poor substitute, but it's something that should be your ambition. To play the second fiddle well should not actually just be, oh my goodness, no, it should be an ambition. 
It's something that I want you to long for, to work for. Second violin, second fiddle, make it your ambition. For when we take second place for the sake of others, we have harmony. We make a beautiful sound that gives glory to God and reaches the world. And yet it is true, if we have this kind of humility, it'll cost us. Because it means that pride will die. You see that? Pride must die. So the first question was, what is a Christian mind? The second is, why? If it's just going to cost me so much, why? Why? Adopt this slave's posture, this humility, this servant-heartedness, and not seek my own glory. Why? Well, notice the four, four if statements in verse 1. That, that's why. So I'll just read verse 1 and look out for the, for, for the four ifs. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, if any comfort from love, if any participation in the Spirit, if any affection and sympathy complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Having this kind of Christian mind, this humble, um, not self-serving, but a humble one another mindset rests on those considerations of those ifs in verse 1. And the fourth if is a summary statement. It stands on its own, does not have a possessive particle. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Affection and sympathy are summary statements, and the other three are an echo of Paul's Trinitarian thinking. And this is a parallel verse to the great doxology, which we call the grace, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Paul is using that Trinitarian formula. Paul is saying if there be any encouragement or consolation, you enjoy in union with Christ. If there's any comfort flowing to you from being loved by the Father, if you enjoy the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. In summary, if there's any affection and sympathy, any blessing flowing to you from fellowship with Almighty God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, that should show itself in the way that you think and the way that you act. And Paul is saying something really extraordinary, very glorious. Paul is saying that if you're a Christian, you're swept into fellowship with the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit, who are turned towards one another in an unending exchange of mutual delight and love. And we, weak, sinful, foolish people, are swept by his grace through Jesus Christ into fellowship and communion with God. So Paul is saying to be a Christian is to be swept up, caught up into the community of love that existed in the Godhead. It's to share in it, to participate in it, to be made the recipient of it. And if you're a recipient of it on the vertical plane, it should show itself out on the horizontal. If to be a Christian is to 
participate in that glorious communion, it means that we live it out in communion with one another. You cannot claim high triune theology and not love your brothers and sisters. That's why John says in 1 John 4, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. To know God involves fellowship in the community of the three persons in the Godhead and propels every child of God into community and unity in the church. So a Christian mind, yes, is a community project. You cannot be a Christian all on your own. It's a contradiction. God redeemed us to be community people and having a Christian mind is a community project. The Trinity itself is involved in rearranging the furniture of our minds. And he wants that to be something that we are involved in as well. There's no privatised Christianity. And how easily we begin to think that Christianity is all about me and my relationship with Christ. And how alien is that way from the Apostle Paul? We're saved one by one into the church. The elect is the invisible church. You know what they say about mysticism? There's an old joke about mysticism. It begins in mist, ends in schism, and centres on I. Because that's what individualistic Christianity is. And that's not what Paul wants for us. Not me, Jesus, and my Bible off in a corner. But me, the Bible, and the community of faith. Living together and forever in increasing unity as we enjoy fellowship with one another for our God. So we've looked at what, why, how. We need to ask how. How are we going to do all this? How are we going to get a Christian mind? Well, Paul tells us two things. Have this mind among yourselves, verse 3, which is yours in Christ Jesus. We get the mind, the Christian mind, in union with Christ, in Christ. It's not something you manufacture. It's not something you work yourself up to, from a carnal mind to a Christian mind, that you can do. It's something you receive, receive your recipient in union with Christ. It's something the Lord Jesus creates in you, begins to work in you. We're transformed by the renewing of our mind, by God, by his spirit, takes his word and shapes and changes the patterns of our thinking in the context of our fellowship with Jesus. So you can't live the Christian life if you're not united to Christ. See that? You have to be united to Christ to live the Christian life. There's no point trying to live the Christian life if you're not united to Christ. To have a Christian mind, you must have Christ. Christ must have you. You must be in him. Are you in Christ? That is the first thing. Are you in Christ? And then as verses 5 to 11 go on, we receive a Christian mind not only in our union with Christ, but by following the example of Christ. So Paul puts this extraordinary 
He, has, he breaks out into this extraordinary Christ hymn. And we'll come back to this. This remarkable pattern that expounds the mind of Christ. And Paul is saying that if you're in Christ, he is who he is making you to be like. If you're in Christ, he is who he is making you to be like. He is the template and the pattern. So if you want a Christian mind believer, make his life your example. Make the Lord's pattern your focus as you seek to conform your life to the standards of a holy God. Imitate Christ, aim to be like Christ. There was a trend some time ago, I'm, I'm, I can honestly say with hand on my good conscience, I never went for it because I'm going to call them those dreadful WWJD bracelets and if you ever had one, I'm so sorry. But it was, you know, I'm not a fan, you can tell I'm not a fan. But it's, what would Jesus do? But it's actually... I felt convicted, is what Paul is asking us to think about here. Strangely enough. What would Jesus do? Only Paul doesn't dish out little plastic armbands. No, he, he doesn't leave us to guess and to dream and fantasize. He tells us what Jesus would do. He tells us what Jesus would do. Jesus gives himself. Jesus lays down his life. Jesus takes the stance of a slave. Jesus pours himself out for his people. That's what Jesus did do. And that is that to which we're called if we're in Christ. And we have a Christian mind. May the Lord be gracious to us to work a Christian mind in all of us. Union with Christ, follow Christ's example. To his praise and glory. The glory all belongs to him. Shall we pray together? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus, our great pattern, our great redeemer. And we're so thankful that we have the Christian mind in union with him. So help us to be what we are, to live out our union with him day by day. And give us grace to follow his example. For his name's sake. Amen.